Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 34 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. I'm Rod Murray, and on this episode, we're going to meet one of the game's most prolific authors, a man who has written 14 books on golf and continues to be one of the game's favourite writers. But before we introduce Kurt Sampson, let me first say hello to my co-hosts, also an author, blogger, course architect, and these days, regular Golf Channel correspondent, and among other things, Jeff Shackleford. Shack, looking forward to chatting with Kurt today. Yes, I am, uh, Rod. Thank you, as always. As always, indeed. And an Australia course architect, critic, touring professional, and avid reader, Michael Clayton. Clates, I know you've read, well, I think you've read all of Kurt's, uh, Kurt's books, and I know that you're a huge fan, so you'll be looking forward to today, I'm sure, as well. Yeah, I will. It'll be fun. Yeah, indeed. And most importantly, the man of the hour, our guest for the show. As I said, he's penned 14 books on the game, including two New York Times bestsellers. His subjects have ranged from the Masters to Ben Hogan and the Ryder Cup. It's a real treat to have with us today, Kurt Sampson. Kurt, welcome to you, and thanks for taking some time. Oh, thanks, gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Yeah, absolutely, and it's uh, it's good to have you on board. I wanted to start, Kurt, by asking you, of course, started life as a golf pro. How did you transition to writing? Was it something you'd always done when you were younger, or how did it come to be that you went from from sort of playing the game to writing about the game? Uh, first of all, I was a spectacular and utter failure as a player. <laughs> I, that uh, opened up uh, new uh, vistas for me. Uh, in other words, I had to find something else to do. And I, I always had noodled with uh, writing uh, a journalism major in, in college. So uh, when I had uh, eventually a, a, a crossroads and... Uh, announced to friends and family that from now on I uh, would be writing. Uh, although my charming ex-wife was uh, dead set against it, other people weren't uh, weren't exactly surprised. Okay, and and that transition from the I'm guessing as a spectacular failure as a player, you enjoy the observation and writing about the game more than perhaps playing it. Is there is there something sort of satisfying about not having to play but being able to observe, knowing what's going on at that kind of level? <laughs> I think so. I, I, at least I can say this, Rod. I've uh, been a hell of a lot better as a writer uh, <laughs> yes. than I was as a player. You've, um, got, you've got as many books as Tiger's got majors, and you're not done yet either. <laughs> oh, my God, that's right. I bet I get yeah. to 18 before he does. <laughs> Uh, indeed, it's I like inter- your chances. Oh. Yeah, I, I like your chances too. Um, it, it's interesting, Kurt. I think, and I noticed this with Clates when we when Clates gets going and starts talking about a topic. Those who played the game at a high level bring an interesting and different perspective. I think. Do you feel that as a former pro in your writing? I, I'd say, I, to some extent, uh, yes. Uh, Mike Clayton, for example, wonderful player. He has uh, hit four footers that. Uh, that mattered that had something to do with his bank account i i, I would i think i have a, a, a sympathy uh for those who um, made the effort to uh and put in the work to try to play the game at a high level so yes I, I, you know you don't have to be a good player to write about golf that's for sure hell I, i've seen a, so many um golf writers who can barely know which end of the stick to hold? Uh, no, but uh, but I I, I think um, that when when I meet a tour pro, I, I have some uh, uh, maybe a little bit more sympathy or understanding for uh, what he what he faces day to day than maybe maybe the next guy. Yeah, you, you're right about the the, <laughs> the people who write about the game, Kurt. Bob Shearer once said at the Australian Golf Writers Championship, you don't know pressure till you've got to bogey the last three to win the Golf Writers Championship. <laughs> That's a pretty fair summation of the talent on offer. Clates, you've, uh, you're an avid reader. Uh, do, you, do you find when you read books, say when you read Kurt's books, do you think, am I on the right track there? Is there an insight there comes from being a player that you can't get from being a choppy 16 marker like me? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, it's, it's always um, – well, it's a hard question. I'm, I'm a, you know, I think um, players have a, some perspective of how hard the game is. I'm, always, I'm a member at Metropolitan in Melbourne where Greg Norman famously three-putted to lose the Australian Open it in 1979. And, you know, I play with these members still. I played with one the other day. He said, you know, the pin was where the pin was in 1979. And I said, you know, can you believe Greg Norman three-putted this hole to lose the Open? And it was a 30-foot putt up a tier on a really fast green. He hit it four feet past and missed it. I was just flicking through Kurt's book on Hogan. You know, he three putted twice from 
10, 15 feet to lose majors in the last hole. But amateurs have never kind of experienced the pressure of having a two-putt to win a big tournament. It's not mm. an easy thing, and they just don't get it. What's harder, Clates, the first putt or the second putt in that situation? Well, the first putt is because you just kind of creep it up there within six mm. inches, yeah. and you sneak it three or four feet past, and of course that's a hard putt. But you know, Hogan, when he three-putted the, the holes at Canterbury and Augusta, he hit it four feet past and he missed it. I mean, you know, it's doable, and it's hard, and people – you know, who don't understand what happens to your hands when you, you know, it's a different game. As Bobby Jones said, it's a much different game, golf to championship golf, and the two don't bear much relationship to each other, and it's so true. Yes. So, you know, perhaps it's conceited or arrogant to say that the average player's never experienced that because, of course, they experience their own pressure, but um, it's a damn difficult game sometimes, and it's, you know, people don't realise that. Yeah, indeed. And, of course, you, we just had the prime example. that You watch that Pebble Beach Pro-Am each year. You can only take so much of it. But it, it is interesting to watch the amateurs react, isn't it, Clades? And you've played lots of Pro-Ams and, uh, and that sort of thing. It's, to watch the, the amateurs react in that situation where there's TV cameras and <laughs> big celebrities and crowds all around, uh, that might start to emulate the sort of pressure you're talking about, I suspect, for some of them from time to time, especially on a Sunday afternoon when you, you come near the end of it. Kurt, you mentioned there War on the Shore, which is your most recent book, The Ryder Cup. I don't know if you did mention it. You might have mentioned it prior, but I'm mentioning it because I read it uh, last week. I got it from the iBook store. What a world we live in. You don't have to buy books anymore. Fascinating and uh, really interesting read. Crucial event, that Ryder Cup, wasn't it, in the history of the, the Ryder Cup and the game in some ways, that, that 99 and the War on the Shore and the camouflage caps and all those things. I got the sense, that's always been my reading of the war on war by the shore sort of thing, but on the ground at the time, perhaps it wasn't quite, didn't seem quite as strong. That's what came through in the book for me. That's how we look back on it as this really controversial and warlike kind of competition. Mm. But at the time, it didn't seem quite so much like that. It was only afterwards it took on that persona. Does that make sense? Well, I don't know if I agree with that premise. Um, there was a great deal of motion emotion um, back and forth uh, between the teams that year during the playing of the thing. And the, the fans were into it in a, a strange, almost perverse way. It was, it's embarrassing in a way. The, uh, the, the U.S. had had a victory of sorts in the, in the Gulf War and patriotism was running sky high and, uh, Charleston, South Carolina is basically a military town. So, um, a lot of rules of golf decorum were kind of stretched, uh, that week and almost to a man, the European side feels that they were, if some feel they were cheated, uh, I mean, and say so, and others, Felt that at least the the American gamesmanship was uh, much more than it should have been for uh, to for everyone to be considered sportsmen in this thing. And then you know, in in in, in retrospect, they're, they're, these guys are still emotional about it. I was remember asking Longer about uh, his last match, the last match of the event, with the, the thing still up in the air. And this, the most stoic man in golf, uh, he got up out of his chair and he's walking around this table and he's gesturing like, uh, like I've never seen Bernhard Longer gesture. Um, he, he really felt that, uh, he, that someone threw Hale Irwin's ball, uh, from the deep, from the sand dunes onto the fairway, uh, on the final hole of the final match, the final day, which is incredible. But uh, Langer believed it. Yeah, it, well, to get emotion out of Bernard Langer, he must have uh, he must have felt something. It was an extraordinary series of events over the the week of that Ryder Cup. From reading the book, you really get a sense of just what a remote place it is. Shaq, I think you've got something for Kurt about that Ryder Cup. Well, I'm, no, I'm just hearing him talk about it. I'm curious, Kurt, looking at your your uh, collection of titles. Uh, I'm wondering how you pick a topic like this one. Um, and then, uh, just in general, uh, what, what, how do you decide what kind of things you want to, to write a book about? Uh, Jeff, often the topic is selected for me, um, uh, an agent or editor or a civilian will tell me that, uh, something or other is just right for my, uh, my bag of tricks. For instance, uh, Hogan, um, my non-golf playing agent, uh, back then, uh, noticed that there had never been a, a bi- biography of any 
uh, account at all about uh, Ben Hogan because, after all, he wouldn't cooperate in such a thing. And he said, Kurt, you're an uncooperative guy yourself, so why don't you go ahead and give it a, give it a shot? <laughs> Got so, all the credentials. So, so I, you know, I, I did, and um, it, it worked pretty well. Uh, only a, a few times has uh, the, the topic for a book been uh, one that I just came up with. One of those was the most recent effort, uh, The War by the Shore. I just thought uh, with the PGA Championship uh, returning to the ocean course of Kiowa Island, the first big event there since that uh, emotional 91 Ryder Cup, that there would be a natural level of interest in it. And uh, and, it, and it, that turned out to be the case. So that, that worked pretty well. And it was sure and such a fun book to write. Hmm. The perspective from 20 years down the track is interesting too, isn't it, Kurt? It's, it's a completely different thing to obviously write after the event. And those... Like you mentioned, yeah. Langer's still talking about that last hole and what he thinks happened there. 20 years later, still remembering it. You, you really do get a sense of what, what was the big themes of the of the week, I suppose. Yeah, it turned out to have been a, a big event in the lives and careers of all concerned. Um, and the cooperation was great. Um, interestingly, the one guy who... Well, I didn't bother with Faldo because he... he just <laughs> He's an uncooperative well, guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, but the, the guy you wouldn't, uh, one you, you wouldn't expect is maybe the one guy in the two teams you won't remember, and that's this chap named uh, um, uh, Wayne Levy. Oh, yeah. Anyway, Wayne Wayne played like a dog that week. He couldn't break 80 in practice, and then in the, in the game, uh, in the competition, he wasn't a hell of a lot better, and he just flatly refused to talk to me. Really? Which, wow. Which I thought, you know, Wayne, you could get your thoughts on the record about how difficult it was and make some, you know, you yeah. might still share an anecdote and, and maybe do something for your uh, image and Q rating, but uh, he elected not to. So, mm. uh, <laughs> so prerogative. So he'll continue to be remembered as the first player to win a U.S. tour event using a colored golf ball then? Uh, Is that right? I didn't. I'm pretty sure. That. I'm pretty sure that. Clay, yeah, you should know that. Right. I'm pretty sure Wayne Levi or Levy yeah. was the, the first player to win on the tour. I'm pretty sure it was an orange ball. Must have been, uh, must have been in the early, uh, the early 80s. Um, some of those people that you're talking about, Kurt, the, you know, the Raymond Floyds and the Lanny Watkins, they come across as quite abrupt and brusque sort of characters. But did you find that they were keen and happy to talk about They certainly sound in the book from the, the stories they tell and the way they tell them that they were happy to talk about the events of that week. They're not all always known as talkative people, those types. How did you find some of them? I, I think in a way there, uh, I think uh, Mike will back me up on this. Often uh, people have a competitive personality and then one, uh, a different uh, set of uh, ways of relating away from that. Lanny being a perfect example what a little son of a bitch he was, cocky, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, chesty little guy and uh, annoying, just <laughs> would annoy the soul out of his uh, his uh, competitors, especially in a format like Ryder Cup. But, you know, I, I found him to be a charming guy, and he was helpful with, uh, with the book and counts it um, his Ryder Cup uh, the portion of his career having to do with Ryder Cup is um, maybe the best part. Mm. That's interesting, Clay. So I suppose you, there are some people. There are two. I think immediately when um, Kurt, I think immediately of Kari Webb, who everybody you speak to says is a fantastic personality away from the golf course. But what the public sees is her on the course. She's very businesslike. You, you strike a lot of that in wow. professional golf, Clay. Well, I, no, I, I'm sorry, I can't get over you mentioning uh, Kari Webb. Um, Jeff will uh, have his own list of the five worst experiences um, <laughs> in being a golf journalist. Kari's like one, two, or three with me. Um, absolutely really? rude. Uh, yeah. Really? Anyway, really? Kari, Kari, I want to know what happened. Listen, well, do we have – it's a minute or two story. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. it. As long as it's interesting, we want to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know the ending. Um, um, I, I had an assignment to interview Ms. Webb at a at the LPJ event in Atlanta. This is quite a few years ago. 
So I do. We went to Atlanta, reported to the golf course. It was uh, a practice round um, and pro-am day. And uh, Kari not only wouldn't talk to me or schedule a time to talk to me away from the the uh, practice tee and the golf course, um, she had her caddy ask me to go away. <laughs> oh. Dear idea. Wow. <laughs> I said, what? Go away? Yeah. We, this was a set-up interview between... IMG and uh, I think it was Golf Magazine I was writing for that week, uh, but I was dumbfounded. I I, yeah. I didn't know if it was my cologne or uh, <laughs> the way I parted my hair, uh, but um, I was hated hmm. first sight apparently. And I wow. but I had, so I had to write the story, this interview with uh, uh, Ms. Webb, without benefit of actually wow. interviewing Ms. Webb. <laughs> yeah, you weren't you weren't the one that nicknamed her Cash and Carry, were you? She didn't like that. Back in '96, when she uh, was the first one to uh, win a million. No, I'm not, not familiar. What What was that? Just oh, when when she, she became the first player to win a million dollars in the series, she might have won a million dollar tournament, that ADT or whatever it was. And somebody nicknamed her Cash and Carry, and she didn't like that. Uh-huh. That was back uh-huh. in '96. She was still quite green, and she's she's wow. very much changed personally. Back to the original question, Clay. No, but that's just interesting. <laughs> I, I I just have to say, uh, I interviewed her last year, and she was delightful. Fantastic. So I'm guessing somebody has uh, gotten to her and. That does happen with a lot of these players. I think they she's just be, aged, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, they sure. get older. She's they matured. Get older yeah. They get over themselves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, look, I, you know, I have my bad days too, but uh, she yeah, was out yeah. there in in the open in more or less an entertainment venue. Uh, anyway, she elected not to cooperate, and I still wrote my story somewhat honestly. I, I said uh, her friends say, say she's great and she's a wonderful player. Mm. Um, but she's a pain in the ass to me, so two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> not, too, not too bad at all. Clay, you'd be familiar with these sorts of reactions, wouldn't you? People that you know that you get along quite well with, well-known high-profile guys, they don't sign one autograph at the end of a round at some point, and they're forever known as terrible people by yeah. that person and all their circle of friends. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's the reputation Mike Clayton has, too, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> unapproachable, very uh, rude man. Now, let's now, your, the famous book, really, is the Hogan book, Kurt. Is that the yeah. one thing? So when I read James Dodson's book, there was a hint that Valerie Hogan wasn't, for whatever reason that I could never fathom, particularly happy with your book. Uh, that's true. What was her problem with it? Believe it or not, uh, one of the major problems was that I quoted um, her uh, husband uh, swearing. Uh, now, Ben Hogan was a high school dropout, and he was a caddy, and he was in the U.S. military. And I was around him enough to hear him say uh, what he said and talk like a guy with that background would talk. So. She uh, wanted to portray and had a friend write a letter to me uh, that Mr. Hogan never used such language, and it was a disgrace that uh, I had quoted him such, and it was, uh, I don't know, she hoped I'd vaporize and uh, whatever. Uh, She was very unhappy with me. Uh, And furthermore, there were others uh, in the circle there that objected to the book simply because of the book. the, uh, viewed it as a, an invasion of of his privacy. Obviously, a, a different time when Ben Hogan was famous, not anywhere near as intrusive as these are, but that's intriguing, isn't it, Kurt? I can't imagine um, a, 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 the wife of a player of this generation taking offence at some... I mean, it's possible that Hogan, I suppose, never swore in front of her. Is that possibly it, that you <laughs> revealed a different man that she'd never known? That, that just intrigues me, that that could upset somebody. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, and boy, what a relationship they must have had. Uh, the one incident I that I, I think about still, um, Hogan had started to win tournaments and money, and it was uh, finally time where they could afford uh, a house. Uh, they could, a real good house, instead of, I, th- I think it was a not a great living situation until this moment uh, in the late 40s. So uh, this friend of mine named Greenwood, Dan Greenwood, um, deceased, unfortunately, uh, he was a real estate broker, uh, took Ben around the, one of the nicer neighborhoods in Fort Worth and uh, said, stop the car. How much is that one? And he 
get, told him a number, and he said, uh, I'll take it. Go start the paperwork. And uh, Valerie was not in the car. <laughs> so Ben bought their first house without any input from uh, Mrs. Hogan. Brave man. I think that probably is a clue to uh, how they interacted. I can't think of anybody I know. Clates, do you know anyone who'd buy a house without <laughs> consulting with their wife? That's an extraordinary decision, isn't it? I know someone who played in that 1991 Ryder Cup for Europe where it went the other way. <laughs> the wife bought a house without informing him. <laughs> anyway. Um, so he came home to the wrong house. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, well, I just bought a house there. Oh, good. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. Oh, wonderful stuff, Clates. I know that you're fascinated with America's fascination with Hogan, aren't you, Clates, in some way? I mean, he's an interesting character, but he seems to have grown into a giant character in the last couple of decades in sort of American folklore, doesn't he, Clates Hogan? Bigger than he was even when he was big, so to well, speak. Well, probably. I mean, Kurt can answer that better than I, but I, mean, I think people were in awe or are in awe of his swing, and I think that probably fair to say that no one since has attained that level of play from Teter Green that he did. So there's here's this guy who played with great equipment for the time, but certainly more difficult to play with than they play with now, but, you know, who hit 52 greens in a row in a US Open and just played at Carnoustie like a machine and you know, hit, hit all these incredible shots and I, I think with the passage of time that we realise that no one's ever done it better than he did. Mm. But, but you know, I'd, that, I'd agree with that. Is that you know, you know is that fact, or is it just part of this the Hogan mystique thing that here was this guy who never missed a shot, and you know, was he really that much better than Sam Snead and Byron Nelson? Is you know, I mean, you, you, you wonder what he would make of the way Tiger Woods drives the ball now. I mean, he was a guy who barely missed a fairway, and you know, the best part. Of the, There've only been two players since who've matched him, really, Nicholas and Woods. And Nicholas was a great driver, and Tiger, mm-hmm. relative for those two guys, is a horrible driver, really. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's a, a common thing around here in Texas, and maybe all over the, the golf world. That you often hear, "What would Hogan say? What would Hogan say about this?" Or uh, uh, said another way, "Well, as Hogan always said," and then he uh, be then the speaker quotes him as if he was an oracle and <laughs> perhaps he was, uh, he really was a unique figure in, in golf. And, and this may sound immodest, but my book, which was the first real biography of him, it's hard for me to ignore that. Um, while there had been nothing on him after my book, there were scores and mm. scores of books, uh, People purporting to be his uh, friend and confidant, and analyses of his swing. Uh, Dodson's uh, large book, uh, authorized by the by the family, whereas mine certainly was not. Um, so you know, the, his, the fascination with that guy is uh, ongoing and, and and may never end. Do you, Do you think it is bigger now than it was perhaps even in Hogan's time? There seems to have been this marketing machine of Ben Hogan, mm-hmm. he really is this giant character now, bigger than it seems. Perhaps I'm finding it extraordinary there hadn't been a biography of him done before yours. What year did you do your biography? I, I, I didn't realise that it was kind of the first uh, one, so yeah. to speak. Uh, mine came out in 96. There right. had been one other biography in, I think, the early 70s called uh, The Man Who Played for Glory uh, by a newspaper writer in Fort Worth named uh, Gregson. Uh, or Gregston, I should say. Uh, so I called Gregston as I was warming up for my project, and he said that, in fact, Ben never talked to him, uh, that he was uh, didn't help, was even antagonistic to the uh, to the program, to the project, I should say. And uh, I said, well, Gene, should I say hello to Mr. Hogan uh, for you? And he said, no, don't bother. <laughs> So it was a kind of sketchy thing uh, pieced together from uh, newspaper clippings that that one in 72. Hogan was, you know, he was Greta Garbo. He was leave me alone all the time. So there were good reasons for people to uh, not want to uh, attempt a a biography of the guy. But I found while, uh, 
you know, he wasn't hugely helpful for me. He, a couple of times did at least open up his office for me and I could look in some files and I saw his, for example, his birth certificate. Um, the world had known him as William Benjamin Hogan, uh, born in Dublin, Texas, where neither thing was true. His middle name is Ben, not Benjamin. And he was born in another town in central Texas called, uh, Stephenville. Uh, but it was the kind of thing he let let go because uh you know, he either didn't care or found us uh journalists to be nosy. <laughs> what did he say famously? Right? So one day a deaf mute's gonna win this tournament and you guys will have nothing to write about. <laughs> like, yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> why do you keep asking me questions? It just seems quite uh, quite silly. Clades, I know you've read all of uh all of Kurt's books. Obviously the Hogan ones are gone. What what have been the highlight ones you? I know that recently you were reading the um the Endless Summer. Is it nineteen sixty I think it was about? The Eternal Summer. Eternal Summer, yeah. yeah um which I've just given to I'm catting for Sue O this week who's an amateur who as an aside is playing a practice round with Carrie Webb this afternoon so <laughs> on your regards good. But um give her give her Kurt's best. Sue O has <laughs> my girlfriend, yes, yeah, tell Carrie I said give her my number, will you? Suo <laughs> is a tremendous player, 17 years old, 17, second in the Australian Masters last year. The time of the Tigers' nephew won, niece won. Uh-huh. She was second last year. And she mm. has no clue about golf. I introduced her to Seve Ballesteros and Lee Trevino a couple of months ago. And, you know, never heard of them. So she's now reading The Eternal Sun, which I think is a – which ties into Hogan. That was the first book I think I'd read that you'd written. I thought it was a – tells an amazing story of – Arguably the greatest U.S. Open ever. I mean, I doubt has there been a better U.S. Open than 1960? Oh gosh, I don't, I don't think so. Boy, that was a dramatic thing. I was glad I was the first to uh, to write about that in the book. That that was uh, that set up the dramatic uh, setup was just so perfect. Uh, I, I, you know, and this kind of speaks to that question Jeff had earlier about selecting a, a, a topic. I think if you if you do select a, a, the right topic, you can, as a writer, just kind of try to stay out of the way of a of a good story and don't let your pretensions and style get in the way of what can be really just a terrific uh, yarn, um, you know, on its face. Of course. Well, what are the things you think about? You said that you know, often non-golf friends suggest topics. The ones that you've come up with, the the the, the book the ones that you've decided to write about yourself. What's drawn you to some of those stories? Because, of course, the results of golf tournaments are, are quite bland, really, aren't they? You've got a player at the top who's had one or two shots less or one in a playoff than 155 other blokes. That's never the story, is it, the win? It's, it, it's how it unfolds. So the ones that you have come up with yourself, what sort of things do you look for? I think I'm thinking to myself, Tiger's win in 97 at Augusta was so much more than just winning the Masters, wasn't it? There was the racial thing. There was the you know, the next big mm-hmm. superstar thing. There were so many elements to it, and then the hug with the father afterwards, which became this sort of iconic sort of view of, of all of that, and we look back at that now maybe in a different light. But what are the sorts of things that draw you to it? It's not just about the numbers on the scorecards, is it? They're, yeah. they're boring stories really aren't they <laughs> rod i think i'm uh attracted to the to the untold story or especially the really good untold story um for example the masters that was a a, yeah. a, a book i wrote that did pretty well and i really uh, you just couldn't help noticing what a sweetheart press that tournament had gotten over the years uh, from a bunch of writers who were uh, shaking in their boots, afraid that their credential would be pulled if they said anything slightly uh, outside the the party line. Um, but I'm frankly sort of an outlier in the golf journalism community. Um, you know, I've never really had a staff job on a magazine, so or a newspaper, so they could pull the hell out of my credential i wouldn't i wouldn't care um and and after all then i guess my point of view was that i owe my effort to the to the reader and not to somebody like whoever Port harden or jack stevens who was ever in power at uh, uh at augusta national so that gave me a bit of a bit of freedom um and i guess it kind of is is my uh attitude. Boy, I'm, I'm, I'm using the, 
perpendicular pronoun a lot here. I don't talk about myself this uh, this much uh, ever. So when you're the guest, well, you have no yeah, choice. Kurt. This happens, That's and it. I'm gonna <laughs> I'm I'm gonna force you to do it some more. Uh, I'm I'm curious if there are any topics in golf that you have wanted to write a book about, but publishers just uh, didn't get, didn't see the potential of. Yes. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and, I, and I know you don't. Uh, probably, you've me, you may not want to give away topics. You still have hope of doing a book, but is there anyone in particular you can talk about? Yeah, I, and I wrote a proposal, and I even had uh, somebody do a mock-up of a cover. I thought this was a great idea, uh, <laughs> and maybe maybe it's not. But um, I guess the reason it's not is uh, here. I have to take three sentences to explain what the idea is. Um. um in 1968, the PGA Tour basically broke away from PGA of America. So the PGA Tour was a, a separate thing. Uh, and then in 1980, 12 years later, the, all, the idea of an all-exempt tour uh, came into play. Mm-hmm. But for, tw- for 12 years, it was top 60 money winners. It was a very Darwinian cutthroat uh way to play professional golf you had to you had to really play every week yeah. and play well to make to make your way and uh, uh, coinciding 68 to 80 was the age of disco and loud pants and mm. uh, birth control pills and doug sanders it was and that then that's my book idea golf in the wow. age of disco uh, I, I, but I, I think it was except for that premise it was I think the reason I couldn't sell it, I didn't, the focus isn't quite sharp enough. Um, mm. I had, you know, the proposal had half a dozen good stories, one or two starring uh, uh, Sanders, um, you know, you know, drinking, sex, uh, competition. Uh, that, that'll they, never they sell. Traveled by, traveled by car. Yeah. <laughs> it was a, I, I don't know. It was also... Uh, when I came to love golf and was, you know, getting into it in a big way. So it was, still think it's a good idea. Uh, if yeah. any of you gentlemen have a publisher for me who would like yeah. to talk some more. Yeah, yeah look, I'm definitely not the one to talk to on that front. Dump the disco, you might have a chance. Disco is still tarnished. It hasn't yet recovered disco. So I ta- don't, don't don't take that out of the title, I, you might be I okay. I take great exception to that. I don't agree. Come on now, you guys, that's just you Aussies. <laughs> Disco now is has has I mean get lucky the 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 song of the year the album of the year is just straight disco ripoff Rod come yeah, on you're well and just truly cleaned of, up at the Grammys Disco you're, did you're well and truly out of my area of expertise here <laughs> okay. Shaq I can assure you I want to go back to the Eternal Summer Clades because I know you were talking about yep. how much you enjoyed it sure. and uh, congratulations <laughs> to you on mentoring young people in Melbourne I've wanted to say that many times well you you do know most of the young amateurs down there the promising players and you you do go out of your way to help them out. And mentor them but tell me what was the attraction for you as a reader of the eternal summer because when you mention you sort of think back and okay yeah, in the 1960 us open i don't know enormously you know of it because it was an incredible tournament wasn't it, it well it was the i mean kurt can talk to this but it was the best open it was the collision of nicholas and palmer and hogan it was only you know we always wonder if bjorn borg could have beaten rod laver and you know could McEnroe have beaten federer but here, here was this tournament where really they were I mean, Nicholas was obviously short of his peak, but still incredible. Palmer was at his peak, and Hogan hit 52 greens in a row, so he wasn't far from it. So it, it was just a, it, it doesn't it couldn't happen in in any other sport where a 20 year old and a 48 year old and a, mm. you know, could play down the stretch at the biggest tournament in the game. And, and Palmer shot the incredible round. And but it goes, you know, it's more than that. It's the Cal Nagel story at St Andrews for the Australians. It's you know Palmer losing to Nagel at St Andrews and the story of the Open, and, and and again going back to Kurt's idea of the seventies. I mean, it, for me, it was that was I guess I was a kid. I'm I'm not sure what kids think about the Pro Tour now, whether they are enamoured with it as we were in the seventies. But you know, the sixties and seventies were, were an incredible time, and in, you know, in, interesting people, and you know. Um, but for me, it was just a fun book to read because it was such a it was such an incredible time. The story of you know going to shoot sixty five. Mm. Yeah. So, 
There it was. Yeah, it was the it was the one year that um, Hogan, Nelson, and uh, not Nelson, Hogan, uh, Palmer, and Nicholas competed against each other in a really meaningful way, and and they were in uh, majors opposite each other in the Masters and U.S. Open, and not giving anything away. Hogan, I mean, geez, here I go again. Palmer won the first two, and the uh, idea of uh, this very charismatic man winning the Grand Slam, all four majors, that was really in the air. It was a little, little uh, frenzy uh, uh, on the sports page about uh, about that possibility. Um, so yeah, that was that was just a terrific year in in golf. I I'm glad I uh, I um, kind of latched onto that thing and and tried to give uh, the, some readers the the, the lowdown on that. There's so many elements to an event like that, isn't there? It just the generational thing. Was was that the year, Kurt, that did Hogan not say something along the lines of, I played with a kid today, if he knew anything about golf, would have won this tournament because he played with Nicholas, I think, in the third. Was that that yeah, year that, yeah. that he talked about that? You, you don't get that um, in other sports, I, do you? That generational thing that Clayton's yeah. just touched on there where a 20-year-old can play with a 50-year-old who has already won everything and the 20-year-old's deigned to win everything, but they can learn yeah. from those people, can't they, directly? Yeah. Oh, that's a very appealing theme, isn't it? The, in golf, the the wily veteran, the uh, guy with great control of the club and his emotions can can trump the the young guy who can hit it a mile past him, um, but may not have developed uh, self control and the entire range of subtlety that you need to to win uh, a major. Um, yeah, I I I I love that. I love that theme. Uh, it was just a unique, uh, mm. a unique um, year, nineteen sixty. It, it's such a deep game, Kurt. You came to the game via caddying. Sadly, a, a route that doesn't really exist in most parts of the world anymore. Tell us about your beginnings in the game. What grabbed you about it? I think Clates came to it the same way. For Clates, it was the dollars of caddying, and the yeah. game became oh, interesting afterwards. What was it for you? Was it was it the the chance to earn some money, or was there some interest in the game prior to picking up your first bag? Um, mostly I was, uh, I was going to be, uh, I was going to hit fourth for the Boston Red Sox. Um, that's a baseball team mm-hmm. in the U S. Um, those plans weren't working out. Um, but uh, when, as well, this is, uh, you guys are probably cricketeers, um, the baseball equivalent to a googly is, is a curveball. Um, anyway, I couldn't hit the damn thing. So, um, my, I'm one of seven children. So the, the money part was definitely, uh, interesting to me. We moved from one state in, uh, from Massachusetts to Ohio and it happened to be near a private golf club walking distance. And, uh, I was 12 and my father said, uh, get your ass down there. Uh, you know, <laughs> go to work. So I did, but, uh, walking, distance was so key uh it was um an unpatrolled uh paradise of green grass at night so a couple of us were sneaking on there like six seven nights a week to chip and putt and even play some holes uh that was and it really got a hold of me uh at that very moment uh arnold palmer was on tv winning golf tournaments and smoking winston cigarettes so uh, i picked up both <laughs> Hopefully, you've given up at least one of them. <laughs> being uh, being the serious Clades, I think it was sort of somewhat similar for you, wasn't? It? Then the game grabbed you. And I'm intrigued by, and Jeff can probably mention this: the USGA annual general meeting. We had discussions about growing the game. We have all this grow the game nonsense from time to time. What grabbed you, Clades, about the game? And I'm sure there were kids that you caddied with who were there for the same reason who never got interested in golf. What is it? What's the thing about golf that grabs some people and just Hooks you for life. I don't know. Um, oh, Clayton, uh, you you answer, and and I'm, yeah, you might have some more thoughtful uh, ideas to answer that. Well, I like playing sport, and it was on a golf course across the back fence. I enjoyed caddying from the first hole I did it, and there were some clubs in the cupboard. My grandmother's clubs were in the cupboard, and I went out there, and I I enjoyed the feeling of. I could hit the ball in the middle. I didn't have any problem hitting the ball in the middle. So I enjoyed that. And I, you know, I met kids who were my age, 12, 13, 15, who loved to play. And 
So it was, I don't know what it was, you just go out there and you play, and from the very first day, I loved playing. It was great fun. It was, And you could spend all day there. You didn't need anybody else. You could play on your own if there was no one else there. And it was um, all, all the things that attract kids to a game, you know, kids who don't need a team to play with them. And some kids love playing in teams, but for me it was the onlyness of it really is you could just go out and play on your own and you could, you could do it every day. It, it didn't matter the weather. It didn't matter anything. It was just – and here was this game that was never perfectable. In fact, not even close to it. But and, and for me it had the extra element, I guess, as you play more, it has the extra element of the golf courses. Mm-hmm. which are the most interesting thing about golf is the, mm-hmm. the, the incredible diversity of the courses. And then I was reading. I mean, I always read about it because the only thing I was any good at at school was history. So, so I was fascinated by you – know, I was reading about these guys when I was 13 years old. I was reading magazines and starting to come across books where you – know, I remember my auntie had a book on Doug Sanders and it was you – know, I mean, Sanders was an amazing guy. But uh, – you know, there were interesting people who were fun to read about. So, so there was this kind of whole thing about golf that I found fascinating, really. Did your auntie's book have some of the chapters that Kurt wants to write about Doug Sanders and his exploits during the disco era? Was they had it? all that stuff in there. That's right. Yeah. It's already been done. There's your, there's your yeah. problem, Kurt. Shaq, I'm listening to Clate's talk there and Kurt before him about a pathway into the game that has brought golf golfers for life, which has really disappeared, hasn't it? We heard... USGA meeting last week, there was talk about. Well, I think the USGA said it's not really their idea. It's not really their responsibility to grow the game, but to foster oh, no. a game that's growable. Is that well? That was the sort of thing. Uh, somewhat, but they're now going to take the initiative further and and also try and grow the game. That's what you described used to be their position. Now Tom O'Toole, the new president, wants to take it a step further and actually try and. Uh, in, invest in the game and, and uh, you know, it just leads to more ad campaigns and more feel-good programs and none of it really is the kind of thing that, that captures somebody imag- uh, somebody's imagination. Usually it's accidental um, and, and we have to create things that, that uh, allow for these accidents to happen. Par 3 courses or Himalayas putting greens or now we have this thing called Top Golf in the U.S., which people are just going nuts over, and it's the last thing in the world you think would uh, create golfers. But I, I like its chances better than than a lot of these feel good initiatives. Because we can't go back, can we, Shaq? I suppose this no. is the problem that golf has gone from a recreation to a business, and the whole point of Grow yeah. the Game is to support the business. And when Clates went to Caddy, it was kind of business, but in an individual sense, it was him wanting to have some money to buy yeah. Coke or whatever after school. And that pathway is lost. Can we – you can't get it back, can you? That's, I guess that's the tragedy. The, the caddy seems to be gone forever. We, do you think? Yeah, I think the caddy is gone, and uh, that's too bad. But, yeah, a lot of this is really – the game itself is – act the way – the actual playing of the game is not that unhealthy. The business of golf Correct. Mm. is not healthy. And so a lot of this is a reaction to the business community – not necessarily golfers crying out for uh, for assistance from these governing bodies, and that's a that's a very strange uh, thing to see the USGA now jump in and want to be uh, seen as helping grow the, the the business side of things, and they and they know that it's it's a tricky thing for them. Mm. They're they're certainly if you read his his text from his speech, he. He's trying to walk a fine line, and, and it is a fine line. I mean, the manufacturers uh, are demanding, and they have these uh, – I mean, Adidas slash TaylorMade had three drivers last year, uh, and they have some some beliefs and thoughts on how to to uh, keep people in the game that are – some of them are actually kind of interesting, and some of them are just uh, ridiculous. Mm. Kurt, what oh, this is state of the game is the name of the podcast. You've been again around the game a long time. It's obviously got you in, like it has the rest of us that are that are sitting here. What's your take on the state of the modern game? We're we're big on bashing the length the ball goes and some of those other things that uh, you know on a pretty regular basis here. What's your take on the state of the game as someone who's been around it for a long time <laughs> and at and at all levels too? Yeah, well, I should say I, I'm kind of, I'm in full retreat um, for seven, eight months now. Uh, the newest club I've hit is my, uh, 
my brassy, which was made in nice. about 1925. Nice. I'm, I love it. I'm, I'm a hickory golfer for at least half a year. And uh, I, I'm really enjoying it. It's such a modest game, and it's so anti the three new drivers uh, in a year that Jeff just referred to. Um, I, I've got a story in the current issue of Golf World in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, about hickory golf. I'm I'm really into it. I, I also love the, the that it's on the ground. Uh, yep. uh, we played this event at uh, Walton Heath in, in London, and I was I was using my uh, jigger uh, a lot. It's a, a like a chipping club. Yep. Instead of lossing the ball up in the air, I thought you know if I hit it off that hill and through that valley and up on that you know through that mess, I can have an entertaining uh, shot here. Uh, so that's the way I played and. Anyway, I'm really not responding to your question. I don't have no, thoughtful answers right. about what to what to do with things, but I really am enjoying uh, going back in time. Well, well, do you think that what you're speaking to with and and Clates and I have played hickory golf together? Uh, Rod, have you played hickory golf? I have a couple of times. I am, okay. I'm woeful at it, even worse than I am at modern well, golf. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's not easy. It is no. an adjustment. You've got to have the right course, that, too, I think, Shaq, is, is key. Yeah, and now I, I'm curious where, where you've been doing it, Kurt, but I'm also what, what course you, you've been playing at. But I, do you think that some of what you enjoy about it is a certain uh, feel that has been lost by uh, modern equipment? Because one thing that I, I – I now am less romantic about the Wilson staff – uh, persimmon era, and I, I, because I, I just, I don't, f- I feel like the hickory era is actually once you've done that and played a hickory course, it, it's a, it's just the best feeling shot, uh, especially when you you really nail one. I'm, but I'm wondering, have we reached a point where for some people who've played the game long enough, the the equipment has almost sterilized things? Ooh, that's a good word. That that um, the multiple sweet spots, uh, maybe an infinite number of them on a 460 cc driver. Uh. Boy, that feels that feels dumb. I I, um, I doubt that you're old enough, but um, when I first saw the big headed drivers, I I, I thought it was almost uh, they were laughable. Uh, they certainly yeah. turned out not to be. Um, so foreign were they to the you know, the little old McGregor head uh, on the, our, our woods way back when. Uh, yeah, the, I, I don't see hickory golf as a huge growth sport. Oh, um, no. Yeah. Just, for, just, just for the lunatic fringe uh, like <laughs> yeah. me. Uh, Which is, it's, it's, it's growing, though, Kurt. It's fun. It yeah, is. There's more and more in the, in the lunatic fringe with each passing week. Clades, do you get this feeling that, there are a lot of people of a certain generation, not kids like Sue O, obviously, who's only 17, has only known golf one way, but there are a lot of people of a certain generation who are uh, really drawn to that notion of having a go at how golf used to be somewhat before. There's a certain appeal to that game, particularly if you play it on the right sort of golf course, that style of game. It's, it's extremely well, enjoyable. I've gone back to hitting my – I got four McGregor fairway woods a day, two forwards and two three woods. They're just – there's so much fun to play with. There's such a joy in – Hitting them in the middle and hitting, getting a great flight. I might use one of those stupid white drivers, and it's just a frying pan. It's just soulless. And it's, <laughs> it's utterly sanitised the game. It's horrible. You know, it, it's effective, but it's. But the great thing about Hickory is that there's a course like Commonwealth in Melbourne, which is a really strategic golf course. You, if you go to the right half of the fairway, you can see that. What, and I've played that course with Hickory, you can't play it from the wrong half of the fairway because you have to go over a bunker. Well, you can play it, but you've mm-hmm. got you know, yeah. the shot has to be so much better to carry the bunker than if you go to the right side of the fairway, you can run the ball along the ground, onto the green. So, so it really emphasises the strategy of the golf course. Now, you know, we can talk about strategy, and you, but in the end, if you hit to the wrong side of the fairway, you can loft it up over the mm-hmm. bunker with a wedge or an 8-iron or a hybrid, and it doesn't really matter. Mm. But you know, it, it so emphasizes the strategy of the golf course, which is, to me, it all goes back to the courses. Golf is fun because of the golf courses. It's not the score you shoot or the shots you hit, but, but it's how you maneuver your way around the golf course. And you play the road hole at St Andrews and get, go in there with a running brassy from 220 yards from the right. <laughs> you know, if you mm-hmm. do the left, I mean, you know, you, you blob the six on on the green now and it's like 
you know, it's not so much. A, so, so they've got to smother the thing in rough to make it, you know, and they ruin the hole. So, so it's the whole of the strategy of the golf course comes out when you've got to play the ball along the ground because you pick up those, you know, those, that long iron straight-faced wooden shafted head and you go, I can't hit this thing yet. I mean, having said that, Jeff, you and I have seen Jeff Ogilvy do it. Well, that's right. Put things straight up and you know, fly it 200 yards. Well, you know, yeah. 180 yards, but yeah, that, that only further emphasizes the, the, the talent of someone who, you know, of Bobby Jones who could hit those great shots. As a spectacle, yeah. uh, I'll come to you on this, Kurt. As a spectacle at the professional golf level, is golf professional golf more or less interesting to watch today? Do you think than say in the mid 80s? Oh, I'd say definitely uh, less. There's that other thing we haven't mentioned yet: uh, the ball. Or maybe it's the ball with the modern club. You used to be able to work the darn ball. It used to spin and curve. There's a uh, there's an old term I just never hear it anymore: banana ball. A bad golfer back in the day with a bad swing over the top, outside in, could hit uh, such a slice that it would uh, describe a banana. It's just hard to do that uh, with a with a, a modern club and ball. So I've, I've really enjoyed that, uh, seeing guys play big curveball shots, hooks and fades, uh, in, in the old days. That, that was a, that was an interesting, uh, game. The, the, basically the rubber ball off, uh, off person and, and, uh, you know, the old irons too. Um, I, I liked that game. And there was a, a flight with a driver you could get, a sort of a, ski jump thing that was thrilling to watch. Arnold Palmer hit lots of balls that seemed to be just hugging the ground for the first 80 yards, and then they'd rise dramatically. Uh, I, I, I loved the flight of the ball back in the day. Mm. So for, uh, based on that alone and some of the personalities, I, yeah, I, I, I like an old, like the old, old-timey game and remember it fondly. Now, Kurt, let, let's divert. Um, the Lost Masters. Tell me about Steve Senzo and Golby and what you think should have happened that day as opposed to what did happen. Do you have a take on perhaps what Jones might have done yeah. today or Roberts or how do you feel about that? Yeah, um, um, uh, thanks. Mike's uh, referencing a, another book I wrote called The Lost Masters about the 68 version in which uh, Golby, I mean, uh, Steve Senzo's signed up a card that had him uh, taking a, a shot higher than he actually shot and having to um, to live with that and thus not make a playoff with uh, Bob Goldie. Uh, since um, the Masters is uh, a hybrid thing, not a USGA event or PGA or PGA Tour, over the years they had gone their own way on, on some rulings uh, with or whatever, their version of equity, what they thought was a, a fair decision and not letter of the law, uh, rules of golf. So in this case, in which the, it seemed the tournament administration was so culpable in the, in the mistakes made, no scoring era, area, uh, most egregiously and some guys trying to pull Steve Ascender away from the little table where he was, uh, not paying enough attention to his scorecards. And finally, the the point that had it been Arnold Palmer, uh, there's no question that he would have uh, been allowed a do-over. Um, I think somehow they should have found a way for the birdie Roberto made on the 17th to, to count instead of the par that his uh, marker, uh, Tommy Aaron, put down. That's my point of view. It's certainly not... Uh, it's certainly debatable. Uh, so are you saying, and, Kurt, uh, and, that, and plainly they went the other way. Are you saying, Kurt, that they could have publicly sacrificed the Fred Ridley of the day in order to, <laughs> as we saw last year with, with Tiger? They, you know, Fred Ridley was sent out yeah. as the sacrificial lamb, wasn't he, really, in that whole debacle, yeah. uh, where you, where, no matter where you stand on the rules, but the club yeah. essentially sacrificed one of their own uh, to save face of the tournament. You're saying that that could have happened and might have happened had it been a different personality. A bigger personality. Well, than, uh, I, I, I think so. <clears throat> Boy, that's a, a similar topic, but a 
uh, I'd like to hear you guys on this. I, I thought it was Tiger's chance to say, mm. wait a minute here, guys. I signed an incorrect scorecard, and I know you're jumping through some hoops to keep me going here. I am I'm not going to play. I'm, I'm going to accept a DQ, or I'll withdraw if you won't disqualify me. I think it would have done wonders for his uh, dicey Agree. image, mm. but that, that did not happen. No, it's still a very clouded <laughs> issue as to whether he could have, should have. I mean, in some ways, that is Tiger making himself bigger than the rules. If the rule is, you know, that anyway, that's a, that's a, there's a whole lot in that. And and he is an interesting. What's your take on Tiger, Kurt? He's an interesting character in the the pantheon of of golf's biggest names that you've watched parade over the years. Where do you sort of place him? How do you how do you think about Tiger Woods in that that whole circle? Well, you know, it's funny. You can't mention a topic that I haven't written a book about. I, I must uh, uh, stop me before I write it again. Um, I, did, I wrote a book called Chasing Tiger. Mm-hmm. Um, I had the time, a, a year to, you know, uh, contemplate him and what he what he meant. What he means now, um, I don't know. I, I see the most uh, during his prime, which has already passed him, uh, it was the most wondrous player uh i i i'm 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 all mixed i loved uh the excellence of his game and um saw it um this talent and dedication hard work he put in squandered on a person i just don't like (laughs) um i i I shouldn't talk about him because it seems so personal um and, and instead of me you know being a little dispassionate about you know where he ranks with, with the all-time greats i i find myself uh going back to um this feeling i have that um i wouldn't cross the street to to meet him mm. Mm. that's all right he probably wouldn't I'm, want to talk I'm to sorry, you anyway. i'm sorry it's all right. I'm, I'm sure that, that really worries tiger that uh, that i i don't think he's uh, the coolest guy but if he's ever having dinner you know, with Kari Webb, you won't be approaching the table no, for geez. an autograph. On the other hand, I love Mike Clayton, Jeff yeah. Shackelford. They're, <laughs> they're princes. Yeah, they're, they're, well, they're the real big guns in the game. Clayton, is it important? I know you get mm-hmm. bored with us talking about Tiger and, you know, the the whole celebrity sort of thing that he's become. Is it important that, that – well, Kurt referenced Arnold Palmer – when he went to Caddy Arnold Palmer was on television, smoking cigarettes and yeah. playing golf and doing stuff. It's kind of important, isn't it, that we have figures in the game that people can look and say, I'd like to do that, not just because he's now a billionaire, but because there's something appealing about playing the sort of golf that Tiger used to play, that astounding golf of sort of 2000 and those sorts of things. Um, what's, yeah. the, what's the role of that, do you think? The, what the, well, there's... The role of the dominant player is that what well, you know? or yeah, or just the 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 personality. I mean, John Daly's a personality in golf too. I guess there are certain players who put bums on seats. Tiger being the biggest of them. Um, it's important, isn't it, for getting people to love this game? Which I don't, I don't, I'm not big on the idea of growing the game, but getting people to love this game, I think, is kind of important. Yeah, but the game's always had that person. I mean, it doesn't matter. It happens to be Tiger now, but there's always been. You know, there was Varden and Jones and Hogan and Snead and. Mm. Palmer and Nicholas and Ballesteros and so Watson. The, the, the game's always had the great star that draws people to it. That they're, they're incredible to watch, and it'll continue to produce the great player. And you, you know, I was talking to Tom Callahan this morning, interestingly about Adam Scott and how you know how gracious he was when he came down here for, for the summer after the Masters and. What a pleasure it was for everybody to deal with him, and mm. it's just not that hard to be a pleasure to deal with. It's just, but he, but he hasn't got the X factor, has he, Clayton? And I don't mean that as a knock on him. He's not Greg Norman. He's not Tiger Woods. Yes, he was fated and he, and he was extraordinarily gracious and all, but he's just not the headline grabber or maker that some others are, is he? Uh, I don't know. Well, it depends if you like watching golf. I suppose there's a difference between the headline grabber and someone who you'd love watching to play golf. I mean, you, it was great to watch Tom Weisskopf play golf and to watch Adam Scott play golf. You know, for me, it's, it's the joy of watching someone who does something on, a, on a, a level better than anyone else. So when you saw, I was like, I saw Sam Snead play down at Yarra Yarra one year. I think the whole of Australia saw Sam Snead play the match with Peter Thompson in 1973. But, you know, it was the joy of seeing someone who, played the game with more grace and balance and beauty than 
almost anybody else. So when I watch Adam Scott play golf, it's like, wow, this guy's it's beautiful to watch him play. So no maybe he doesn't have the X factor, the dragon. The, but it was great to watch Palmer play too. I mean, you don't have to, you know, perhaps you don't have to be elegant, but the way Palmer played was also compelling. Know, wasn't it? Yeah, compelling. But Tiger's just, I mean, I agree with Kurt. It's just, you know, I, I, if Seve Ballesteros, I've, I've said a hundred times, if, if Seve was on the first tee and Tiger was on the 10th tee at, at 824, yep. and there's no doubt who. You I, gonna, I, I would watch and I'd watch him play all 18 holes. Yeah. Just, tiger. just on that, um, Clates, when Kurt was talking about the old ball and the way it curved and everything, it just dawned on me. Um, could we have Seve with the modern ball? He was a bit of a product of the equipment in some ways, some of those magical no. shots he hit, wasn't well, he? Well, he'd be better, well, wouldn't he? Well, in some ways? Be, well, he'd be less in. Well, mm. the greatest shot I saw, one of the great shots I saw Seve hit was the 10th at Wentworth, the par three with a big slice green. Trees in front of the right, trees cover the right half of the green. So you either play the left and put it across or you went over the trees with a four iron. And Seve had a three iron shot that started at the left edge of the green and sliced 60 or 70 feet around these trees to six foot. It was, so the question is, could Seve hit that shot with a modern ball? Maybe he was such a genius, maybe he could, but with a Ram three iron and a, and a Pro Trads Titleist, it was no problem for him. Wow. You know, you just, and it was... You know, it was 1980. I can still see that shot. It was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen. But now you, you know, you watch those frying pan drivers, and everyone hits a great drive in every hole. So well, they hit a long drive, don't they? It just isn't a great drive anymore. No, that's right. They hit long yeah, drives. The average, the average drive on the US PGA Tour is 300 and change. Uh, that's average. Where that used to be held out as oh, that's well, that's a, achieved rarely by somebody named Nicholas yeah. or. Somebody, yeah. I, I don't know, but uh, uh, there's definitely been some inflation. Or I think you could down. you could safely say, Kurt, that a 300 yard drive in 2014 is nowhere near as impressive as a, t- a 300 yard drive in 1975. <laughs> it's, yeah, uh, agree. It's yeah. a far, far easier thing to achieve. Well, what were they averaging here at Royal Sydney, Clates? I thought it was, I think McElroy and Scott were averaging about 310 meters off the tee, averaging. That's well, Rory just, hit it in that practice round. Rory hit it. Um, he, had, he had two drives that went 370 yards. I was counting for Ryan Ruffles, a kid, and he said, I mean, Ryan's 15, he hits at 300 yards, and he's a runt. And he, he said, can you believe how far this guy hits it? I mean, he was just 370 yards is a long way. Yeah, it's a long way. But, of course, he also knows how to play golf. We know that was it – I think it was uh, Huggy said he caddied for you once, Clates, and you played with Nicholas Colsarts years ago, and, he said, and Huggy's quote was, and I loved it, it was uh, – he really knew how to. He could really hit a golf ball. Had no idea how to play golf, though. <laughs> he's, he's gotten better. That was in, that was, in golf. that was ten years ago. So. Yeah, he has gotten better, no doubt about that. But it's 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 not just about hitting. You've got to know how to play golf, and they are two distinctly different sort of talents. And you need to have both to uh, to achieve anything. Kurt, we've probably taken more of your time than we meant to. I could keep sitting here on me all day. There are so many things about oh, golf I've, to talk about. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, before I go, I, I just want to mention I was uh, playing hickory golf in England last fall and I met this wonderful guy in Perry Summers. I wonder oh, if you know well, him. Well, I yeah. do. Fabulous guy and no, good player. Yeah. Mm. Seriously. Yes, and we were, uh, we were talking about Norman Von Naya and, you know, we we just had a terrific time, uh, and he would want me to say hello to you for uh, for him. He's a, a club pro in uh, Cologne, Germany, as I recall. He is, um, and he, he comes back like here. an Australian, too. Comes back here most years and plays in the Hickory Championship that they've been trying to get going here the last couple of years. They've had a couple in of fact, good successful ones. Let me tell you a story about the Australian PGA Senior Championship. Oh, at, yes. At, where did they play it? Ro- Roseville, wasn't it? Roseville up here Lara. in Sydney. It was about three years ago, yeah. and Perry was going to play with his Hickory clubs, and they, uh-huh. were, they, they were illegal. That's right. They wouldn't let him. They banned him. The crews on the face weren't parallel, or he had, <laughs> he had. So could you find a complete amount of point-missing exercise? It wasn't that. <laughs> Sorry, Perry, you can't play in this championship because your clubs are illegal. Yeah, non-conforming. 1930 clubs. I mean, you think it's going to be an advantage to play with these clubs? Well, how embarrassing would it have been if he'd gone out and won at Clates, which is not beyond the realms of possibility because he scraps it around in quite remarkable numbers with the Hickory Clates, Perry. He's a a seriously good player. Hmm. Perry's Perry's brother, Vaughan Kurt, was a really good player down here. He he lives in Melbourne now. He Mm -hmm. he won tournaments on the tour here. and 
they were good players. Vaughan was a better player than Perry, but Perry is a terrific player with a hickory and a great guy, great fun. And, and looks like Sam Neill. So he's just kind of winning, isn't he? He know. does. Oh, that's, oh, thank you for that. But <laughs> I was wondering where I'd seen him before, and it was on the silver screen. Well, Sam I, if you ever see a black and white photo of Perry with all the gear, you'd swear it was Sam Neill in a movie about uh, about, mm-hmm. about golf yeah. from the last century. He's uh, And a lovely bloke, as you say. Kurt, oh, one of the questions I was going to ask you was, do you think you'll ever run out of things to write about about golf? But I think we've proved by the fact that we could go for another three hours. That's unlikely to happen, so we'll <laughs> We'll call it quits here, so you've still got some books to write when we finish. And thank you very much for taking the yeah. time. Oh, oh, it was my pleasure. Let's do it with beer next time. Oh, outstanding! And no microphones. And then you then you can use the F word to answer your question before we start recording today. When we do it that way, Ben, great to have you aboard. Really enjoyed chatting to you, Shaq, over there in the states. Always good to uh, to chat to you as well, mate. All right, thanks, Rod. Thank you, Kurt. And, Thanks, uh, gentlemen. Thank yeah, you, Jeff. To and, you, Mike. And now, 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 do that book on the 70s. Just go and write yes, that book. Yes, I'll, I'll buy it. You've got two sales. Jack, are you in? You're buying oh, one? Oh, yeah, I'm in. You've got three guaranteed sales. We'll drop up a few more. No, You'll you find guys a publisher. Want your books. You guys get your books for free, but uh, thanks thanks for that. Not at all. Clayton, great to have you aboard as well. Really enjoyed uh, chatting today. And that's it for uh, State of the Game, episode 34. Do hope that you've enjoyed it. We'll be back to do it all again in a couple of weeks' time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a talk and golf production. Theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.